Hello, one and all, and welcome to the podcast we call The Fantastical, with myself, Stephen Espelm, in the podcast, where I invite my guests to come on and talk to me all about their musical tastes and experiences, and they also get to create their fantasy festivals, which I have called Fantastivals. We are now on episode number 73, and before we press on with this one, I just want to say a massive thank you to my last guest in episode 72 of the podcast. I had Keith Mullen on from the farm. He was an absolutely great guest. He spoke so passionately, had so many great stories and collated a quite simply superb fantasy festival. So a massive, massive thank you to Keith. And let's move on in episode 73. And I'm delighted uh, with my guest this week. I'm delighted to welcome singer, songwriter, guitarist from the fabulous Dodgy. It's Mr. Nigel Clark. Hello, Steve. How are you doing, mate? Very, very well. All the better for having you on the Fantastical Podcast, Nigel. And I'm sure we're going to have some great stories and a great chat about music. But before we do, Nigel, it's been a difficult 18 months. And I always like to check in with my guests to see how they've been doing. So how have you been, Nigel? Um, Yeah, I've been really well. It's been a really busy last six months. So the 18 months where we weren't working was eye-opening and, you know, really... You know, I learned a lot. I think I, I realised that we continue learning through our life and it was just I had so much time to, to learn new skills, learn about, you know, I've got my little basement studio, as you can see here, and I, I was doing lockdown gigs from here, pretty similar to what you were doing with, you know, your podcasts. And then I've been going out on the road since July and doing a lot of travelling, which is quite tiring because, you know, it's, I haven't done any driving for 18 months and then I only have to get like 40 miles up the road and I need a nap. <laughs> <laughs> and like I've got to, so, you know, it's in, and that's quite tiring, but uh, I've had a really busy six months and the only, my only sort of thing I feel is when, when I talk to people and they go, God, we saw you at this so-and-so gig and everything now seems to be three years ago. And I don't know where that went. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like 2019 was probably the last time I did some, you know. And so, you know, even that's, you know, when we started up doing the homegrown tour with Dodgy, that was the start of 2019, which is nearly three years ago. And it's like, now I'm starting to realise where did the time go, especially when I go out. Yeah, I get that. And you've been doing, I've seen you've been quite active um, the last couple of weeks doing gigs and getting back out there. How, how does that feel? Yeah, it feels it, it feels really good. I mean, I must admit, I've been doing a lot of, I did a lot of festivals with the band, which was great, which is sort of like, you know, we played kite surfing festivals and beer festivals and, you know, festivals of everything, you know. But it was really good. But And, you know, I love that. But um, I've been doing a lot of sort of solo gigs in sort of pubs and small clubs. And then I've been working with Chris and Mark Morris, Chris Helm and Mark Morris from the Blue Tones. And so we did about five gigs mm. together where we play separate sets and then we do some songs at the end together. And that was really good. That was really refreshing because it just, just felt like something really new. To go with a new time, because I do feel that. I do feel that it's a bit of a new time we're stepping into. You know, it's like, you know, do you know what I mean? It feels post something. Mm. And I think that, like, it almost feels post everything. It's a new it's a new era. So having some, doing some music with new people is very exciting, you know. And I didn't expect that to happen. Yeah, and it keeps it fresh, doesn't it? I guess for you, it, it keeps it fresh, it keeps it alive, and it keeps it different. It really does, and it's been it's been really nice to sort of step into that because I find that you know when you do do festivals and stuff like that, you do really have to play. You don't all, not all the songs, but you have to cover your your sort of hits and stuff like that. I mean, not that we had many, but there's a, quite a lot of songs that we had three albums, so there was quite actually quite a lot of top forty hits. But you know, I mean. 
this is the one thing about being in a band and being a musician sometimes you just forget you know and so you want to do new stuff but the audience or the promoters or someone or the bands don't want you to do you know what I mean they want to play those songs you know so there's a, a desire to do that and then there's also a, a, a new thing to do things that are new include some of those things but bring in new music because this is the voices together is something really new so yeah great stuff been good yeah I bet, I bet. So let me let me take you back, Nigel. How did you get into playing music? How how was it for you? How did you how did you find it? Oh God, I, I think that I was your typical. I, I'm the youngest of three. I'm the youngest boy. I was really sporty when I was younger. I was a fast runner, and you know, up until a certain age, and I always played football. I I I've loved I love football the game. I love tennis. And then I think I got to about nine, about 11 years old and punk happened. And I'd listened to Led Zeppelin. My brother and sister were always into, I'm from the Midlands, so it's the home of rock, basically, Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin. Mm. One of our neighbours, I went to the same school as John Bonham, you know, one of our neighbours was Ozzy Osbourne's nephew. So it was like, I was like around rock, you know, and I lived, I was born in a place called Headless Cross. So I'm like, you know, it's like... <laughs> You know, it's like, I, I don't know, I'm forged in rock somehow. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and I think it was around me. And when uh, when you go to a school as someone like John Bonham or something like that, or anyone, it just puts you a little bit closer to some dream or belief. Now, I didn't have any music lessons, so I was like, kind of, I didn't come at it from a musical point. I came of it from a, a teenage my thing, you know, like a, a generation, like my generation. I came of it from like a sort of belonging to something. And then obviously I started realising that, I, and I knew I could sing. I always knew I could sing, but I just didn't have, it would take late at night walking home from girlfriends at 15 with my mates and I'd just make songs up and I could hold the tune, you know, or I could sing a punk song or a clash song or something like that. And I knew I could hold the tune, but Unfortunately, punk, and when I was doing it in 19, when I was singing like that in 1981, punk was all about shouting mm. and, do you know what I mean, and having a really gruff voice, and I didn't. <laughs> I was just like very tuneful. So I, so it was quite a, an eye-opener that I actually loved punk rock music, but I couldn't actually play it or sing it. So, you know, then, yeah, so I had the attitude and the sort of, you know what I mean, the do-it-yourself attitude yeah. of punk. But then I then I wanted to uh, you know express songwriting in a different way and you know so I started to learn to play guitar so I learned to play guitar at fourteen and I started to talk myself listening to records you know punk records but the what I realised later were cover versions of songs by the Animals and things yeah. like that you know <laughs> so I was very strictly into like you know the, the, the classics you know I think everyone does and I was you know yeah it was. And I've stuck at it for 40 years, I think, and I've been playing for 40 years, and I'm like, and I still love playing the guitar. I've got it here, look, it's just, you know, it's always with me. It's like, I do play keyboards and drum machines, and I, I'm really into lots of music. I do a lot of electronic music. I mean, I've got like about three drum machines, and I like syncing things together, so it gets a bit orbital in my little studio sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, so I mean, it's, it was 
And I think I stopped playing football and I just got so much into music. I worked in a record shop at 15, an indie record shop. So, um, and that was the first thing that ever happened in the town, really, from in the music point of view. I had the coolest job. I got, I, you know, I just love music and I love buying it. I love listening to it. I love telling people about it. That was one of the things about being a kid. It was yeah. like the hunger to hear the new things so you could go to school the next day and go, have you heard that song? Do you know what I mean? And I used to do that when I was young. And I think I grew up really quickly, you know, in that sense, musically, because I was just so hungry for it. Yeah, there's nothing better than going into school. I remember someone would bring in like a mixtape and goes like, listen to this, there's a band called Oasis on yeah. this tape, it's going to change your life. And all my mates in our GCSE year all had that tape and rinsed that tape. It went from every kid in the year group. Yeah, that's what that's what it's all about, great memories. So you and it was, yeah, and it's word of mouth, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you're right. It's absolutely, it, it puts you in another world almost. It kind of transports you somewhere and, and takes you where you didn't know you could go. Yeah, which is very like the tribal thing of football. So in a sort of tribal supporters sort of thing, like you mentioned Oasis and I mentioned The Clash, it's like they were musical football yeah. teams in a way. Do you know what I mean? That you, and then you get, when you love them and you've got your favourite songs and they do something you don't like, it's like when they buy a new player or sub your favourite <laughs> player. Yeah. It's very similar. And I think what it was for working class kids, um, you know, and I, I was never brought up as a working class person, but I was. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, yeah. my mum and dad, my dad was a, worked in a factory and my mum worked as a civil servant. I was definitely working class, but they always wanted better for me, do you know what I mean? So it was just like, so I always had this sort of, uh, I don't know, I never thought about it. I just thought I was lucky, I suppose, you know. So, yeah, but I, I think the working class thing is, is that it's football, it's music. And then you get like, you know, for me, it was like I got a job in a factory at 17. I had a mortgage at 18 or 19. And then I and, and then I realised I didn't want this job and I didn't want to have a mortgage at 19. It was like, what was I doing? You know, what was, I was just me appeasing everybody else as the normal thing to do is get a job, get a house, get a girlfriend, get a kid and some dogs and a caravan. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And to me, at 19, that was... I, I just started a band with Matthew uh, and I was I mean, I was about 18, 19 when I met Matthew. And, you know, I started a band and I, and I sort of, again, believed that, that belief of knowing that John Bonham went to my school, started raising his head and going, you know, if you want to do this, do it, you know. And I thought I knew what I wanted to do. And I thought that that was an amalgamation of all the things I loved. And maybe that would have been interest to people who were listening. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And when I met Matthew and saw Matthew drumming, I thought, well, great. <laughs> you, know, you know, he's some mad kid drumming and going crazy. And I thought, well, he's brilliant at that, you know, and that will cover over all my insecurities on guitar and stuff like that. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. But, but yeah, yeah. So you, that belief just gets a little bit more believable, a bit clearer. The crack, the light in the, it's where the light gets in, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. And it's, it's not, it wasn't an overnight success story, was it? It's obviously a lot of work goes in. Dodgy weren't your first band. Obviously, there's other bands and they merge and they become dodgy. So a lot of hard years, hard graft. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think even though, I mean, saying that, when I look back at it, it seems so quick. Mm. When you look back now at two years, I was just talking to you about three years and lockdown seems to have stolen three years from my life in some you know, part of my life. But, in, in you know, we moved to London in 1988 and we got a record deal three years later. We did work really hard and those years were long. 
because when you've got nothing, time does go slow. Yeah. You know, and we were like, we had nothing. We had no fans. We had, you got no fans. We had no, <laughs> no fans, no friends, no hardly any music, new, new instruments. But what we did have and what was bucket loads of it was belief and, and you know, belief in us. And if we could, and it was like a jam lyric, you know, even if you fail, at least we tried, you know, and that's from a jam in the city by the jam. And at least we tried. And it was like, it was a lot of that, really. I think, you know, as, as a band, we pushed ourselves to not think that it was everything was a given. We had to work really hard. We had to work really, really hard, a lot harder than other bands, especially with a band name like Dodgy. <laughs> we didn't make it easy for ourselves now in hindsight i know that in hindsight 50 50 i think well we didn't make it easier for ourselves but we stood out i think we stood out you know we had the dodgy club and that was ours and we we felt that we were like sort of like i said earlier we were we were trying to fit find a tribe find to find out our, our fans and our support you know that slowly built you know to this to this you know, and we got so far, and then it all exploded, as bands do, you know. <laughs> the manager got sacked. <laughs> well, free album. I mean, it feels like, looking back, it feels like you had more than three albums at that point, but it was three albums, and I guess, looking back, fairly all quite condensed in quite a short space of time, looking back, well, I'm sure it doesn't feel like it. It, it. Again, when you look back and you go, my God, we did all those albums in, in basically three years. Yeah. So we did the first one, which was released in 93. The second one was released in 94. And the yeah. third one was released in 96. And so... And B-sides and stuff like that. I mean, we were very productive. I don't. The greatest thing is, and when I look back at all those 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 few years, it seems it was. I look back at them and think how lucky we were to go into a big recording studio. We would had, you know, the Rolling Stones or Talk Talk or the Clash or you know a number of bands in that studio and we're there and we've got it for a month do you know what i mean and you get up in the morning you have someone makes your breakfast and you go right let's go in the studio and what ideas have you got and i'll get my four track tape out and go yeah there's this and then you work on something it was like amazing it was like it was like it was like a i don't know wet no like you know when you can't go out it's, i don't know i don't know it was just the most amazing feeling when i look back at it at the time it was we had to do it and we knew and we were really busy and we didn't really have time to think about it. But now I look back and think, wow, that was an amazing time. Yeah. When you released that Because it wasn't our money. Yeah, exactly. It, it wasn't your... like our money. <laughs> yeah, I see. Uh, yeah. I guess, yeah. When, when when you look back on that first album, I mean, what were your expectations for the first album when you're recording it? Did you were you thinking this is going to turn me into a, a global star? Was you was you more grounded? I mean, I guess you get into the studio. It's what you've been working for your whole life, and it, it's yours there to to put to put your imprint on it. Yeah, and I think there's a sort of danger in that. I I, mean, I remember there was a lot of. A lot of people had a lot of uh, those expectations mm. that they put on you or they go, you know, we, well, we think. And then, you know, and once they've said that and you realise that it wasn't, it didn't go anywhere, it didn't fly, then the disappointment is so yours, so it's still yours. And I didn't have any expectations. I just heard other people's expectations. I wanted it to do really well. I wasn't sure if it was. And then when it all came down to it, I mean, if you look at the photos on the sleeve, it's hilarious. Because when it all came down to it, we weren't ready to do yeah. to join a major record label and go, right, well, what's your image? We don't know. We just, <laughs> we know, you know, our image was like day to day. I mean, literally, you know, our image, we, we, 
you know, until we didn't have one. So then you go and get, you know, a stylist will come in and go, well, we need to, and they, you know, it's just, it, then we realised that we were probably quite naive on that first album. Do you know what I mean? And the, so the look wasn't fitting to the music. I, I mean, that might not be true, but it could be one of the reasons when I look at it and go, that's not what we dress like. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, on the yeah, photos. Yeah. We never went out in, in like, I mean, we were, I mean, if you look at the sleeve on that, we're wearing like, we're the forerunners of the Christmas jumpers. Do you know what I mean? Literally. <laughs> And so, well, I mean, no one's ever had it kicked it off with like a fashion with Christmas jumpers, apart, you know, apart from at Christmas. It's not really, you know, your sort of rebel stance, like, you know, where is it, you know? But hey, do you learn? <laughs> you absolutely do. And home, second album, Homegrown, I mean, it has some big hitters on that. Did you have any idea when you were writing that, thinking this sounds like a big song? So, for example, when you're doing Stand Out, when you first, I guess, have Stand Out for the Summer. And you first hear that back in the speakers. You're sitting there going, sounds like a hit to me. I think I've got something here. I think we've done it. I, d I don't know. I mean, I, again, I don't know. I, I, all I can remember is I remember going on tour and just coming back and listening to Radio 1 and hearing. I remember writing a whole thing about pop, you know, PWL whatever it was, you know what I mean? Uh, Kylie Minogue and all that. And uh, I can't remember, Peter Wilk. And it was just like listening to them all the time on radio and just thinking, where's the... So my expectations were really low because there was no nothing on the radio that supported what we were trying to do, which was just play classic, in, in our heads, classic British culture, the small faces, the who, you know, the Sex Pistols and that was that, and the Clash. And that was our sort of thing and a bit of soul... And that was our thing. And it was like, at the time, it was techno. It was, you know, like I say, it was just pop music, take that, all that sort of stuff. Mm. And then, and obviously you had your extreme, your Nirvanas and grunge and stuff like that. And then you had your dance crossover, your baggy thing. But there wasn't anything that was pop, do you know what I mean, that was building into the, the pop world, the mainstream world at that point in time. So I just think that there was a it it took a lot to get through, and it was a groundswell of bands by about 1994. So when Staying Out for the Summer came out, no, 95 actually. So end of 94 and early 95 is when it really started, when it couldn't hold back anymore, and and this thing that we now see it or know as Britpop happens because it became everybody like you. You heard that mixtape probably yeah. at the same time. You know, and it just and it just got out there, and so now everybody wanted you. Everybody was going to these gigs. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's great time for music. It's just like we were all surfers. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure on that mixtape that I just spoke about. I'm pretty sure in a room was on that mixtape. I'm pretty sure. I so mean, that'd be '96. Yeah, that'd yeah. be '96. So I mean, so you had like two, two. I think you had about so. I, and I, the thing is, don't get me wrong. I loved that early period when we were doing our dodgy club. That was brilliant because it was always successful because people were coming. But when we crossed over and went on to a main, a man of, you know, a, a mainstream record company, a major record company, then they would put money into it and they wouldn't see the return. So it was automatically deemed as a failure. And that was, but it wasn't mine to take. So I never thought of it as being a failure because, do you know what I mean? And then obviously, like I was saying, the second album, we were lucky enough to get a second album, yeah. which was homegrown. And then obviously staying out for the summer, hit that thing, the perfect timing. I remember Noel Gallagher coming up to me at some party in London and just going, uh, oh, I really like that staying out for the summer songs. It must've just come out in like, you know, cause it came out twice in the end of 94 yeah. and early 95 you know and it was again it just you know so you've got i don't know 
well, for, I don't know when the, the first Oasis song was probably April 94, was it? Or something yeah, something like that. Like yeah, yeah. Supersonic. And I think that, you know, there was this, and then there's a blur, and then it just, it just took off. It just took off, and you felt that, like, hold on, you know, and for about two, two and a half to three years, it was fantastic. It was, like, incredibly, because you couldn't even, you couldn't pinch yourself and believe that you were part of it, but you were, you know. Yeah. <laughs> part of something. Um, yeah, definitely an amazing time to be to be around. I've, I mean, I'm going to have to talk to you about Three Piece Suite, Platinum Album, In A Room, If You're Thinking Of Me, which I think are two great tracks, but might be put, pushed back because there's obviously one track on there that you... I, still, I heard it last week on the radio and my wife was nodding, I was humming, and I was like, bloody hell, this still... Hold up. I mean, good enough. Are you sick of it yet? Or are you are you right with you're right with it? I don't know what. I mean, it's one of those songs. I think. I mean, it was possibly the most undodgy song that we ever did. But it was literally me fucking around with samplers <laughs> at home, and it happened accidentally, really. And I wrote the song about my son. My wife was pregnant at the time, so I had to do it quite quietly. But you know, it was. It was quite a personal song and it was, you know, about being, you know, we're all told we're shit and we're all small, you know, not tall enough. Or, mm. And I thought about, you know, that with, with, with my family, with Marley, my son, you know, and it was all it was all about that. That's why we went to Jamaica. That's why Marley's called Marley. Right. You know, it was a sort of, uh, it's, it, I wanted it to be as positive as a Bob Marley song and a George Harrison song and a Carpenter song. That's what I was that's what I was going for. But then when I remember playing it to the band, I didn't have the chorus at the time. I just had the verse and the bridge, and then I had a riff. But it was all on, it was on a loop, uh, a sort of a breakbeat, and I'd play keyboards on it. And it, it, I mean, to be fair, it sounded very poppy and very, quite solely, because it was a breakbeat. And uh, the band weren't, Matthew was. I don't think the other members of the band and the, some, but the, the horn section loved it, but some people didn't. I think it's quite like Marmite. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I think it's some people don't like it, but the thing is, it's the most popular song. It was a, it was the most played record in 1996 ever. You know, so like on radio, it was. Yeah. And so you know, I I understand people if they don't like it, which is because sometimes I don't like it. But I like the fact that everybody sings it, and and it's. It's there. Do you know what I mean? It's there. It exists. You know, I brought it into the world and I hope, and the message was true. I just wanted it to be positive, a positive message, you know, in that sense that, you know, the same thing where inner room comes from, which is like looking at something, looking at the isolation of London and how Londoners were putting headphones on on the tube and there was no eye contact and people lost the sense of community. And that was in the 90s. When you look at it now, mm. we're fighting to get a sense of community back, yet we've been divided so much. So it's a very, you know, I, I don't shy away from politics in my songs. I try not to. I think that, you know, I don't want it to be the be-all and end-all, but you especially now you're it's a political world 10 times plus whatever it was before i mean yeah. we were talking about the 90s and Britpop and you know the band thing that was like what it's like now with the politicians and brexit and whatever you know pandemic that was what that was what music was like we were the match we were on tv every day you know what i mean now you don't get any of that you don't get any of it you get news night you get panorama you get political pro you get the you know america the problems with the world you know and it's like oh shit <laughs> do you know what I mean and it's like we I feel that we were so in our naivety possibly or our in the 90s were uh, were a really positive time we actually believed and then I think that what happened in 1997 it, it just 
you know, just disappeared for me, you know, just sort of like 98, actually. It was just sort of like, got had a really great 97, and then 98, I could just see this whole thing crashing, you know, for some reason. I don't know why. I don't know why. I think it just, ex- things get exploited, don't they? And then everything yeah. comes in. It's like anything, you do anything, and then two years down the line, everyone comes, and, and the whole quality control just goes, whoa, down. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it just ran its course and for it you. It became really, just, yeah. Just done, done with it for a couple of years. Yeah. I didn't mean it to happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it wasn't my fault. I didn't burst it. It just <laughs> felt like it just felt like it was uh it was over for me. It was over. I think everything had caught up with me and I'd gone, Oh shit. <laughs> All that time in the studio I've gotta pay for you know what I mean? <laughs> I comes out my wages. Shit. <laughs> So what? So, so how? So how do you? How do you kind of step back from it? Then what? What do you do in that period when you've had enough of it and you go right? I think I'm done. I'm done it. I need to step back. What do you do? Do you kind of become a family man? Do you just do things and don't do them? Like what? What do you do? I think you do what. What you? What you realise is that you don't continue. For me, you don't continue what was not right. Yeah. So it was like it was like a a reaction. So I had a reaction. At the same time, like I said, Marley, my son, was born, and then I had my daughter, Electra, and so it was pretty prime for me to go, right, okay, this is as well, you know, this was all going on, and I could see the cracks, yeah. like, there was there was cracks, and I just thought the best option for me would be to just come out of it, save my face, not feel like I was going to ever... I, I didn't, you know, I left, I left, I had to sign the record company and leave the band and leave yeah. the record company. They let me go as well. It was almost like, it was like, I was in hospital and they and I just went, I want to leave. And so I had to sign myself out of it. I think for my possibly my mental health at the time, my wife's mental health, having two kids under 18 months without me being around would have been a nightmare. And I just think that culminated with the problems that I was having with the management and with the, the band in itself and the record company and the whole shebang, it I could just see the signs that this was going to end turn up where I would lose control and, you know, the next thing I'd be on the, you know, I just had to take the man's decision and go, right, I'm going to take some time out here, do have to look after my family. And to be fair, that was 25 years ago. And it feels like, you know, it's like I'm, you know, when people talk to me about the music industry, it's like an old thing. It doesn't exist like that anymore. It's not, you know, that was the end of it. That was that one. And it's proven it was the end of it. You know, after that, Napster came out and it yeah. was like ownership of like the album and, you know, the, getting into the band. It's, and now, 25 years on, we're, we're now looking at, you know, what is the future of concerts and gigs and stuff like that because of, you know, I've been through it all, you know, and, you know, and I'm back to playing at pubs again. And, you know what, I'm, I can on hand on heart say that I'm, I'm happy. I, I do what I want to do still, you know. Unfortunately, people still want to come and see it. And, and I'm always trying to push myself and learn. So. I think the fact there were so many brilliant bands back in that era there's a, still so much nostalgia because today there's not many new bands coming through or i think someone of my generation looks back and go i don't want to go and see a band now because there's nothing for me i'd rather go and see a band like dodgy or cast or your ocean color scenes who i can relate to and they're and they've got 25th anniversaries and they're, they're going to play one of my favorite albums in full like there's a no-brainer yeah. so there's still a lot of love for stuff like that and i know you guys are playing shine on on sunday and you know massive kind of gigs and concerts like that where you can go and see bands who you loved and that emotional attachment is still there and 
for want of a better word, I think some of these artists are more grateful nowadays to be playing some of these festivals where back in the day it might have been like an arrogance or a youth to it where it might have been taken for granted. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely feel that there's, like, nowadays, like, back in the 90s, it was very competitive. I mean, it all sounds like you can all go Britpop and say it really quickly and think that everything fitted in there, but there was no, there was no, like, sort of togetherness, really. So, I mean, you might have had, like, a couple of bands that sort of few had friendships, but it, it felt very competitive at the sort of time, you know, in London. It was a very competitive industry. Strangely enough, you know, there was always that sort of, you know, to get into the newspapers, to have a fight with someone, like, yeah. staged a little bit, you know what I mean? You know, and it was, yeah, competitive. And, yeah, I think, you know, when you... Well, I think we moved down there at a time when, you know, it, was, it wasn't like that. You know, we were competitive with our own families. Or, you know, I'm going to do this, you know. And, and I think that we tried to do things our own way. And then you realise that, like, you know... It, it was a bit, I don't know, I don't know, it seems, it seems a lot easier to get on with people. You go and talk to people now, and that's all gone, do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? People are not so guarded, because you had to be careful, because everyone wrote about everything. Like the, like the news, music papers don't exist anymore, you know, so there's not going to be journalists like at gigs and like, going, well, he was like this, and you, don't, you lose all that now, don't you? And yeah. All you get now is like st- fake, fake stories of like Harry Styles or Adele or Ed Sheeran, <laughs> you know, it's just like... That's what it's all boiled down to. It's been boiled down to like three people. <laughs> basically, yeah, you're basically you're basically right. But I'm glad to say you got back into Dodgy. You've released two albums since you've been back. You've got a solo album out that I listened to uh, today, and it's fantastic. So that was great. So when you were saying about mixing all these different elements, I was thinking that sounds exactly like your solo album. So mm-hmm. Nigel, give us tell us about tell us about the solo album. I listened to it today. Make believe love. And I believe that was not re- recorded recently. That's you've had that for a while, and only just released it or released it recently. Yeah. So I've been so, so last last weirdly and at, at, at start of twenty twenty, I was taking three months off to start recording a new album, a new solo album. And by March twenty twenty, of course, we realised that there was going to be a pandemic and we weren't going out. And I said to myself, right. I'm not going to record a new album because I've got an album that I recorded. When I left Dodgy in 1998, I moved out of London with my children and my wife and we moved to the Midlands. And I hired a studio. It wasn't really a studio. It was an empty, empty, empty sort of room, really, in a custard factory in Birmingham. And I had a bunch of songs and I went out one night with my friend Jerome, who helped produce. He helped engineer Free Piece Suite and stuff like that. And he did all the little sounds in between the songs on right. Free Piece Suite. So he did all the remixing, basically. Because it was a remix album that we had, we were, get, we were doing while we were doing Free Piece Suite as well. So it was real fun. So it was like kind of like, you know, yeah, I suppose just an electronic version, just sampling everything and just like making new tracks. And yeah, so me and Jerome, we, he moved to Birmingham with me and we found, we just went out and we were looking for a, an act, a band that we could sort of like use as musicians. And we found a band in Ronnie Scott. So we're like a funk band. And we're obviously into like a lot of the music that we liked. And yeah, and so we just borrowed them for about, you know, 12 months and they just come to the studio at night and we just like 
we did a lot of jamming. We got into a lot of like, you know, kraut rock can jams and stuff like that and tape loops and stuff. I've got loads of the stuff, but that was the idea was to have that album done, Make Believe Love. And yeah, and so I recorded it, but never, I, I was going to release it through Cooking Vinyl in 2000 because it was the first album after Feed Peace Week, but I couldn't afford it. I'd run out of money. I, I was absolutely skint and I just went, I can't do this. So I had to give, I had to give up music. I couldn't do it anymore. I was just starting to skin. So uh, I was trying to bring us so out to go back to work and work in a factory again. Wow. <laughs> so it's sort of like, so it's like sort of um, circles round, you know? And so, and then, yeah. And then sort of like slowly sort of work my way back into getting a studio again. Yeah, I've done it. I've been down, I've been up, I've been down, I've been up and that's life, you know? And yeah. So, but now it feels very different to that time. I mean, touch wood, I mean, you know, I've been very, I've been busy and I've been able to, you know, I haven't got the overheads of owning a studio in, anymore and stuff like that, which was expensive. And when you're working on your own, paying for your own studio, your own time, paying for everything else, you're not working as well. It was just, uh, and I didn't realise that. And I had to, that was a bit of a, what? <laughs> I'm so skinned, <laughs> do you know what I mean? But I had the album and so I, I managed to get it pressed up and yeah i'm really happy i'm really happy it's kind of got out there and people are really enjoying it which is great so and it was done i mean to put it a time a chronological timeline on it when we finished it about two months later i mean it was september it was 9 11 so two months later and i think how long is too long one of the songs on there it was you know it's sort of like i don't know you could feel that i could i can feel the tension in that album and i remember the tension at the time with the brewing of like an iraq war and stuff like that you could i remember it really clearly about there being this real sort of discomfort in in the world and 20 years later you look back and it did change the world 9 11 did change yeah. the world you know massively and it's like you know and now we're, we're we're nearly a quarter of the way through the 21st century and what and like the world's very different and it's changing a lot you know we you know we love music and stuff but you know at the end of the day who knows if music's going to be around in five ten years time because we just don't know what's going on yeah scary times but i'm sure hopefully music will be i'm sure your hopefully solo album will still be available you can get it physically which i like i love the fact you can get it physically post the apocalypse (laughs) (laughs) you'll find a whole bunch of vinyl stash somewhere down down once the uh beyond the rubble of the uh, nuclear nuclear fallout but it's great you can buy it physically though that's really good you can buy it physically, yeah, you can do that. But I mean obviously it's on, on it's on the yeah. Spotify thing, which is obviously killing musicians but daily, you know. So yeah, I mean I'm just you know, that that's the thing. I mean, you know, I'm just tip a tip of an iceberg really is the Spotify thing and you know, we all need to support musicians and get out there and support local bands. I mean, that's where it starts really. The community venues. If we lose those, they win. Yeah. Simple as really. Just death of youth culture and our culture, you know. Yeah. I don't want that to happen. So we're going to try and get a cooperative venue going in in Worcester, where I live. You know, just some of the some of the guys that I work with, and see if we can get a cooperative, which is just to fund itself, and you know, not to make not to make profit, but to put it back into the local art scene and stuff like that. You know, because it's it's really hard out there still, isn't it? You know, people. Yeah. It's we've been through a sort of a, you know a cultural a cultural earthquake. You know. Yeah, everyone's got those areas that I I had the standard in Walthamstow where I used to go and see unsigned bands. That's gone anywhere that you would go to find out these places and go and see bands. Half of them, if not all of them. I remember the standard. Oh, I did remember. you? Didn't it burn down once? It yeah, did. Yeah, I, mean, I used to go. 
Oh, I love it. It did burn down when yeah. we played there. Or we played there really early on. Like, we played a tour, I think it was called We Lovebirds for London. So on the dodgy album tour, I think we played the standard. We played five gigs in five days in London, like Covent Garden, but I'm pretty sure we played the standard. Or if we didn't, it just burnt down or something. <laughs> remember some sort of story. About. But I used to go, we used to go and see bands there to check it out and see yeah. what it was like and check bands out. You know, on a Friday night and see if it was worth trying to get a gig there and stuff like that. Because we recorded a lot of demos in uh, at Bark Studios, which is oh. in Walthamstone, yeah. which is where Primal Scream did Loaded and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, a lot of stuff done at that little studios, you know. Yeah. Okay. A lot of creation music. Yeah, a lot of standard now, fortunately. It's been gone for about 10 years, I think. It's not been there for a, for a long time, which is unfortunate unfortunate so Nigel you mentioned punk at the beginning kind of putting you into a whole new world what is that kind of the genre you're into what kind, what kind of music do you listen to these days what what, what what does it for you I think I think at the moment I think I go from the, the, the heart of you know all the, you know the passion of punk you know and I think about punk I think it's really raw and I think it's a really it's a it's a really I don't know it's a positive energy you know but I also think that I my other favourite sort of music is Northern Soul. I love Northern Soul, and then I, and, I, and everything in between. So you've got so and, and I, you know I, lo- I love hearing the positivity of Northern Soul. I put you can put any Northern Soul on, and it's just like within ten minutes I feel really positive. That doesn't mean that I don't. I, I love Leonard Cohen, Towns yeah. Van Zandt. I love I love songwriters. You know, I, I, I actually I'm you know I'm in my fifties now. I. I kind of pride myself on the fact that I've got a very like my food taste is I, I, I like a lot of different foods from around the world. I like my music to be quite eclectic as well. Always has been, you know, I've never since I was a punk when punk was just like blinkers. You weren't allowed to like anything mm. else. I used to secretly like ABC and, you know, and loads of bands. But you couldn't when you got discharge on your back or <laughs> yeah. or whatever. And so you couldn't say that you liked ABBA's latest song or something, you know. But nowadays, it's like, yeah, I can like punk and I can like electronic music or ambient music. You know, I like I, I like a lot of new music that's not even out on record. It's just on, you know, I like a lot of the, um, I was listening to stuff by, uh, I like Godspeed You Black Emperor. Mm. A, lot, a lot of their early stuff was really good. And Constellation, is it, no, Constellation Records. That's one of their record things on, on uh, SoundCloud. Yeah, I listen to a whole load of music nowadays. It's not all punk rock for me. <laughs> I always like to ask people what their first record was and their experience of buying it. Do you remember buying your first record and that experience? Yeah, I do. I mean, I bought it off my friend's brother. So my friend sold it. I don't know if his brother knew. He was his older brother. And it cost me about a pound. Put the perspective on that. My lunch money was about £1.25 or £1.50 for a week. And I paid a pound on a Monday morning for a creased up God Save the Queen in about 19, <laughs> about the end of 77. So it even it was even over. You know, I mean, the Jubilee had gone, but I bought it off my friends at school for, you know, uh, four fifths of my lunch money. And then I had to go hungry at lunchtime for a week. But it was worth it. It was my journey. So it wasn't from a shop. But, you know, I mean, that would be a, a jungle book or something like that. But... <laughs> When I was a baby or a kid, but yeah. So the first thing I actually went on buying that was "God Save the Queen" by the Sex Pistols. Great stuff. And we've spoken a bit about festivals already. Are you a fan of the festival? Because when I speak to people who aren't in the industry, they kind of love going to music festivals and watching bands and discovering new talent that they might not know about. But the more I see, speak to artists, artists don't seem to be that into them in terms of the whole kind of concept of sound shit. 
you've got to play literally to the to a certain time point and then you're done and it's just a bit of a faff. What what are your views on it? Do you I like do, them? I do really like. I mean, there are, I agree with those things. I mean, I I must admit I've you know that I liked going to Glastonbury as a as like a punter and part and to be part of it. I always found that the sound on stage was terrible because mm. you just don't know what you to expect. So so when people say you play Glastonbury, what was it like? And I'm like, well, it's amazing. Glastonbury's amazing, but my experience of the sound on the stage was pretty awful, and it was very hard to enjoy the concert, you know. But I actually really like festivals. It's a really great chance for me to go and see other bands and stuff like that and hear other music. I really like that part of it. Yeah, and, you know, and you know, I think it's a totally... It's if you're getting to a new audience or playing for a new yeah. audience that wouldn't necessarily come and see you. or you know, And I find that's always quite interesting anyway, you know. I mean, some people, they don't like it because it's just like it's muddy and you have to sleep in a tent, but, you know... No, well, I've got a van. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have any... I've done, for, for, for someone like me with a van, it's perfect. I can park my van backstage and go to sleep there and wake up in the morning and go, you know, that's what I do. Done. Yeah, yeah. And do you have any gigs that you look back on? This can be as a music fan or being part of a Dodger or a solo, as part of your solo act. Any gigs that you look back on and just think, that was absolutely amazing. That's one that will stay in my memory forever. Yeah, I mean, I mean a lot of the, it's a lot of one of those, you know, when you go, oh, I've just seen Cosby Stills and Nash at Glastonbury. That would be a high point. Because it was like, you know, I, I'd listened to them a lot and then I never thought I'd get to see them. I saw the Velvet Underground. Oh, wow. Uh, when they reformed, when they reformed and at Wembley. And that was a pretty monumental moment. Uh, I saw Bertie Yanch in the 12 Bar Club, which was pretty amazing. I've played Bertie Yanch, play with me. I've done lots and lots of things. I feel that like I'm very lucky to have been to so many gigs. I saw DJ Shadow on the private press tour, which was amazing. I saw Cornelius and John Spencer Blues Explosion. I saw Cornelius quite a lot, actually, about four times over his career, and I really love his stuff and his technology and his light show. Um, lots of bands that I didn't get to see. You know, I didn't get to see The Clash, didn't get to see The Jam, didn't get to see Dead Kennedys. Most of the punk bands I never got to see. You know, I did see The Ruts recently, and that was wicked, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, I'd sort of... But, you know, it is... I've seen Neil Young. Neil Young would probably be Neil Young in Hyde Park, with, and his backing band was Booker T and the MGs. That is pretty much probably the greatest concert I've ever seen. Wow, great stuff! You know, Steve Cropper playing guitar for Neil Young, Neil and Duck Dern and the Booker T MGs being the drumming and the bass and it, and Booker T on keys. It was like, hold on a second, this is fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. yeah. Great stuff. So like I said at the top of the podcast, the aim is getting Nigel to collate his fantasy festival. So Nigel gets to choose any five acts, one of whom must play one of their albums in full. And Nigel gets to choose an encore, which all of his five acts can perform together at the end of his fantasy festival. So you get to pick one song to close your fantasy festival that can be any song by anyone. So very simple. Like I said, in the last episode, I had Keith Mullin on from The Farm. He collated his One Love Festival. He held his at Stanley Park. In his opening slot, he had NWA. In his super second slot, he went for Sleaford Mods. In his Midway Madness slot, he had Marvin Gaye, who made his first fantastical appearance. In his pre-headline slot, he had The Clash. Uh, and in his headline slot, he had Bob Marley. So he had all those five acts. And then at the end, he had them all come out and play Junior Mervyn's Police and Thieves to close his fantasy festival. So very simple. Five acts take five time slots. So before we talk about your acts, Nigel, you get to name uh, your fantasy festival and you get to give your fantasy festival a venue. So what are you going to name and what are you going to call your fantasy festival? 
Oh, the dog wants <laughs> it. My dog's dog barking. <laughs> oh, we bloody do that. Um, oh, God. Can we come back to that one at the end? Can, yeah. I, can I have a little think? Because yeah. I hadn't thought about that, actually, when my dogs are barking. Uh, yeah, we'll have, we'll, we'll have the event in barking. <laughs> around the, well, not around the corner, but that's not too far from me. All right, let me... Um, I'll, I'll go on about your accent. So, Nigel, have you got... Before we talk about your five acts, you've mentioned quite quite a lot of great acts already who you've listened to or who you've seen live. Are there any acts who haven't made your five, but you just want to give a shout-out because they mean a lot to you? Yeah, yeah, Talking Heads, television. So a lot of this sort of, like, the punky stuff from New York in 75, 76... Weirdly, Marvin Gaye does appear, but he doesn't appear as one of my acts. But I was just listening to what's going on a couple of weeks ago because I was doing some bass playing on. Uh, on I, I've been working. Me and some friends have been helping out with a homeless group and in Stratford upon Avon and socially excluded. We did an album, and I had to do all the bass. And so I thought I'm going to listen to what's going on for James Jameson because he's yeah. one of the greatest bass players ever. And I spent the whole week listening to what's going on and just like going, this is fucking crazy. So he, <laughs> he is going to appear in my my event, but not as an artist. So Marvin, like I say, television. I mean, it's it's endless, the list of bands that didn't make it into my uh, top five concert, like Jimi Hendrix, The Beatles, who, you know, it's The Rolling Stones. I mean, Beach Boys, you know, there's, it's endless. This would be a curating something that I think would make a good afternoon of music, you know, and quite eclectic. Love it. Brilliant. Don't so, want to call it the eclectic festival. The what? The eclectic festival. The eclectic <laughs> embarking. Yeah, that'll do. I love it. <laughs> so we've got the eclectic embarking. Some great acts I've missed out. Um, so let's talk about the five who make it in. So, Nigel, two o'clock, eclectic embarking, sold out, lovely sunny day. Who's going to open your fantasy festival? Well, I think because it's a lovely sunny day, I'm going to go. I want to want people to chill out and just start get feel relaxed. And I'm going to start off with someone they probably don't know, but somebody that I think is very under under underlooked in in music. And you know, as someone who's given me so much joy in in his songwriting, I'm going to start with Towns Van Sant. Oh, great! As my shout. sort of after headliner headliner. Great shout! So for someone. If anyone listening doesn't know about Towns Van Zandt, obviously I, he passed away a few years ago, didn't he? Which was a which was yeah. a huge huge shame. And I've got a, I've got a really good friend actually. The guy who does the sound for this podcast keeps telling me to go and listen to more of his stuff as he really rates him. So so why Towns Van Zandt for you, Nigel? Well, I, I, re- I, I when I got into him, my friend was his tour manager in Europe, and he just said you've got to listen to Towns Van like like your mate yeah. tells you. And what happened was I was doing a lot of gigging and driving and I started putting him on. I, obviously, I'd got into a few songs early on and just went, these are brilliant songs. And, you, you know, I'm a massive Bob Dylan fan and, I, you know, I love Bob Dylan. And I love the, what the birds and other bands did to Dylan's songs. And it's like, with Towns, I just feel that uh, he unlocks something else in his songwriting and his lyrical descriptions that just are are so, they just take me away. So I just thought that in an audience, if an audience was listening to Towns, he's got so much imagery in his songwriting. And it's like, uh, because he's a, he was one of the outlaw songwriters, you know, like Willie Nelson and Blaze Foley and, you know, Johnny Cash sort of vibe. They were outlaws. They sort of like went from town to town, drank a lot, you know, partied hard and just, and spread the message of love and, you know, freedom to to the American Americans in the early late sixties and early seventies, like just like that one man on the road sort of thing, you know. And I think that's why he, he sort of like it, it is like the ultimate songwriter for me, you know. So 
great shout. He opened your fantasy festival. So Towns Van Zandt opened the Eclectable. We'll play from two till three. We'll take a half hour break and it'll be time for Nigel's Super Seconds Act. So Nigel, who's going to follow Towns Van Zandt into your Super second slot? Right, I'm going to... This is very, this, I mean, this is, I'm, I'm trying to picture this, like, this is, so we've had a half an hour break, so it's now, what is it, half three? Half three, yeah. I'm wrong. So the next band on stage at Eclectable is the Velvet Underground. Oh, love it, love it. They've been chosen a couple times, the Velvet Underground, and I think, like you said, like, it's, I think you're one of my only guests who actually got to see them. I think a lot of people have spoken about them, never got to experience them at the time. And see him. So, so why why the Velvet Underground for you, Nigel? I think that you know, after being a fan for so many years, and still finding things that I love about them, the, the most and what I found out and realised is that pretty much they were the the start of indie music. They were you can pretty much place them at the centre of indie music. Like so, Iggy Pop, everything punk that followed. You know, it, it sort of come from the Velvet Underground. You know, Goth, the Cramps, the the Cave. I think the influence that that band had was just incredible for not being successful. You know, the, but the influence. It's like Brian Eno said, like. For every, you know, like the, every person that heard the Velvet Underground, they formed a band, and it's like, you know, I think that's an amazing accolade, and I think that they're worthy of it. I think they mixed art uh, and brilliant songs and classic songs. I mean, if you listen to a lot of their demos, they sound like Dylan songs, but then they mixed Stockhausen and like you know John Cale coming in with drone music, and and then you know they just ripped up the rule book female drummer who stood up and banged Jesus and Mary Chain it's like you know but these beautiful sweet songs like the first album for me the Andy Warhol album the Banana album is probably when you listen look at the songs on that album you're like that is a fucking great album I mean they're timeless but John Cale said during the film I watched the other day that they rehearsed for a year and as you can tell you know they were really great brilliantly performed as well in some sort of you know, abstract way. They took they took apart the rock and roll band and put it back together with Picasso's style. I don't know, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. so they just deserve they can't they can't I don't know where to put them, but they, they have to appear because again they are so important to the culture that we love. Great shout. So Velvet Underground, they were mentioned in episode seventy, so I had Paul Hemmings who was in the Lars and the Lightning Seas, he had them uh, but he said he wanted to I see know, he said he wanted to see him in a dark and dingy, smoky room, and he wanted to see him tight but loose at the same time. He had that tight but really loose vibe about him. So, yeah, so another artist picks the Velvet Underground. Great shout. They'll play from half three to half four, and we'll take another break, and that'll take us to your Midway Madness slot at five o'clock. So, Nigel, who are you going to have in your Midway Madness slot? Follow the Velvet Underground. My Midway, mid, midway. My midway <laughs> Madness band are going to be Can. Oh, good shout! So, so I'm going to have they're more they're more sort of uh, again a bit more arty, a bit more sort of. But I, th- I, you know, I just love the com- combination of that band. I think again that they come from to music from a totally different angle to most people, and I think it's it's never boring listening to Can. I mean, they always and I just love the tribal drumming. I love the the the, the sort of electronic beat sound to the drums. The, you know, and the sculpture of their music, you know, it's like a, it's like architecture of music rather than like, you know, anything else. Uh, so, yeah, that would be very different. And I feel that I was getting because I always talk to people and they say, who's your favourite band? And I go, well, this band, this band. And I'll say can and I'll go, 
Who? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. obviously, clearly, very underrated, and I'm not happy about that. I think can should be on the lips of everybody daily, really. Well, they are Pepsi can, isn't it? But you know, more <laughs> about the music, you know. Everyone's got that one band, haven't they? Who they feel should have been bigger and had more kind of exposure than what they than what they had. So we've had yeah. bands like Suicide mentions and lots of different bands mentioned who never made it, but in my guess eyes should have been huge. Yeah, I think it's just, I mean, these. this is a band that were going in the late 60s, early mm. 70s, and all through, but, you know, they'd probably split up by the time I got into them, but when I started thinking, I was like, um, how come this has been missed? And then, obviously, you get the David Bowie story of, like, them going to Berlin, and that was pretty much because of the, the whole Krautrock thing, Harmonia and Faust and Can. you know? I mean, they were all doing TV soundtracks and but they were rebelling against their parents who were you know fought for the other side in the second world war so they were starting from year zero as musicians and a culture so they had this blank 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 uh, canvas to to create on and so it is very ex- you know it's, it's so ex- ex- uh, you know experimental but that's why you know david bowie went there and brian eno and went yeah, this is what we want some of this, and it and you can hear it on those on those albums. That sort of cold, almost you can hear it on you know on stage, not on low and stuff like that. that there's just a coldness to the music, which is I don't know angular or something. I don't know what it is, but I really like it. It's funky. <laughs> yeah, getting funkier. <laughs> so can take your midway madness thought. It's the first time they've been picked on the Fantastical podcast. Good. So they make your Fantastical, their Fantastical debut even. So three acts down, two acts left. Next up will be your pre-headline act. They're going to have half hour more, your pre-headline act. They're going to get to play from half six till eight o'clock. So Nigel, who's going to take your pre-headline act? Well, I did. I mean, I'm going to say, I mean, I really wanted to have Lee Dorsey and the Meters. I'm a massive Meters fan. I mean, a lot of these sort of choices are because I really like the drummer. <laughs> but I also really like Lee Dorsey and, and Alan Alan Toussaint and the whole Lee Dorsey sound. But I've actually gone for a different band, some by, a band that were massively influenced by Lee Dorsey and the Meters. Uh, and it's not The Clash, it's the band. Oh. So the band are going to be my pre-headliners. Up on Crickle Creek, the night they drove old Dixie down, the wait, they're coming up next. <laughs> <laughs> And I guess the ba- the band have got a wealth of stuff. And again, for anyone who might not be familiar, might just know him as Bob Dylan's backing band for a certain amount of time. Yeah, in 1966, yeah. yeah. But there's a great film called The Last Waltz. So I just recommend everybody watching. It's the greatest filmed film by uh, Martin Scorsese. And it's the greatest film that's ever been recorded of a band. I mean, just to, just to understand that, the way they worked they work the cameras, because they had 15-minute film, and it goes on for two hours, and how they had to work the cameras mm-hmm. so they could change film over and not lose the shot and not lose the performance. They had to have a camera going all the time. It's a feat of genius in 1976, and it was all filmed, at, I think, uh, in San Francisco at the Fillmore or something like that. But it's like a host of bands. It's like got Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan, you know, George Harrison. So many people turn up and sing, and it's and Dr. John, and it's and they have the horn section from the band, from from the Meters. You know, uh, it's just um, and Alan Tucson arranges all the horn sections. So it's kind of like you know, I say the band were like you know the party band really. They were like they like the. I mean, I love the Clash, and the thing is, I would like to have been in the Clash or the band. They had that sort of thing that yeah. you know. I wanted to be in that gang. 
Yeah, definitely. I think I think yeah, I think a lot of people say that about the clash. So the band are your pre-headline act. They play half six till eight o'clock, leaving one more slot available, and that'll be for your headline act. So we're going to get two and a half hours to play. So your headline act is going to get from half eight till eleven o'clock. They're going to have to follow the band on. There's a wealth of talent been on your stage already, so no pressure on your headline act, Nigel. So who who are you going to have? Who's going to be your headline act? Well, I just think this band are pretty much the funkiest band out there and they 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 don't get mentioned enough really but i think that's that that they they were they're so funky just and so and so and at the time just such a mix of culture and color and music you know like there were all sorts of music uh, that was going on in their form it could have been fella cootie because i love fella cootie and i love the afrobeat style um, and I love the idea that, you know, you play songs for two and a half hours and that's one tune yeah. <laughs> because I love that style of music and I love the fact that it's just all about dancing because this is now going to be our dancing moment. So the part, the lights are coming on and we're going to listen to Sly and the Family Stone as our headline act. Oh. You know, can I take you higher? Um, just sing a simple, simple song, family affair, dance to the music. You know, there's a riot going on. I just think that they would be the most joyful headliners at a festival. I think everybody's going to go home elated after hearing them play. But that's a great shout. First time they've been picked for a fantasy festival on this podcast. So you've got four new acts coming into the Fantastical Vault. So Town Van Zandt, Can, The Band and Sly and the Family Stone all making their Fantastical debuts, Nigel. Brilliant. That's amazing. <laughs> great stuff. So they're going to make everyone dance for two and a half hours. It's going to be a very funky two and a half hours. Everyone's going to love it. And then at 11 o'clock, they're going to welcome back on the band Can, the Velvet Underground and Towns Van Zandt. And they get all to play one song to close your fantasy festival. It can be any song by any artist ever recorded. So who, what song are you going to have them play? I mean, this I appreciate this is a very difficult question. This is one that always is potentially harder than getting five acts into a fantasy festival lineup. Yeah, it was it was a bit easier for me actually because I realised that um, you know when I was going through the list and I was taking people off because I wanted someone else on, you know. But but then I thought it goes back to what what Keith said about Marvin Gaye, and I think that um, I would like everybody to go come back on stage with James Jameson on bass and play What's Going On. Oh. So I just think that would be absolutely amazing and just such a a lift for people to be aware that you know that, that everybody's aware of, of what we've got to do and what's going on and i think that that song when i listened to it for a week and the whole album recently it's still such a social commentary yeah. in that album you know it's like uh marvin Gaye was so important to not just music but to the world you know i really see that you know as a message and like to be able to put a message across like that and not be deemed as being cheesy do you know what i mean yeah. or cheap or do you know what i mean to be able to put a message about of an album like what's going on to, have to, to be that brave to put your yourself out there in that way and you know say save the babies and stuff like that i mean it's a real important it's like it is bigger than a record so yeah that would be my closing point because it'd be just so such a, i don't know sharing something amazing great shout great shout so let's round up your fantasy festival in so we've got the eclectival going to take place in Barking. I'm sure there's a massive place in Barking where they do some festivals, so we'll hold it there. You've got Towns Van Zandt in your opening act slot, followed by the Velvet Underground Super Seconds. Midway Madness, we've got Can. Pre-headline act, we've got The Band. And headlining, we've got Sly and the Family Stone. And for your encore, they're all going to play What's Going On. That sounds like an amazing fantasy festival to me, Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> 
can't wait to go. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's lock that one in then. So that one is done. So before we wrap up then, Nigel, Shine um, is coming Sunday. I think that's your last gig with Dodgy this year. What does the future look like for you? What, what, what you got going on? Um, it's a really difficult question to say. I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to spending a bit more time in my studio, if I'm honest, but I've got, I've got this, uh, I've got Shine going uh, on Sunday and then in two weeks' time, me, me, Mark Morris and Chris Helm are going to be, we've got this new band going and we're, we're going to be supporting Shed 7 on their world, you know, world, not worldwide, UK tour of Shed Semba. So we're going to be doing that. So we've been really busy learning and writing songs together. So we've been just on a tour. So we're doing that until Christmas Eve. So we've got like a whole tour ahead of us from Aberdeen to, you know, like Andover. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Great stuff. So, yeah, which is going to be good because I haven't done a tour like that since 1996. So it's like, you know, that's this is 25 years ago. So it's like, you know, and, and it's going to be great because it's it's just the three of us go, plugging in our acoustics and singing harmonies together and singing each other's songs. We're going to sing one each song of the Blue Tone Seahorses and Dodgy. And then we're going to do three new songs that we've been writing and then we've got one or two covers that we're going to do. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. So that's my next plan till Christmas. And then in the new year, we've, we've already started booking some festivals as Dodgy. I think me, Mark and Chris will be going out on a tour on our own in April. And just see. We're just going to see. I haven't got... I mean, there is talk of an album, but like I say, it's like... I'll just like sort of keep working towards, you know, I'm trying to get the best thing. Just want to keep busy, really, and just keep, you know, keep gigging and enjoying it and hope giving people a good time for them, you know, coming out. You know, that's the sort of thing I do, really. Yeah, sounds great. I, I'm really looking forward to hearing more about Chris Helm and Mark Morris and seeing where that goes. It's obviously three established songwriters and great bands back in the day. So we're looking forward to that one. So Nigel, if anyone's listened to this and has really enjoyed it, how do people find you on social media? Because, you know, I think it's such a big thing these days. I think we should give it a plug. So yeah, how do people I mean, find you? I my, my sort of, my sort of, um, I'm on Twitter. <laughs> I think I'm on Twitter as Dodgy Nigel. And I'm also on uh Facebook. I've got a band page on Facebook, which is Nigel Richard Clark. Just to confuse everything, I keep using a different name. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, but I've got I've got Nigel Richard Clark is my main one on Facebook, and that's where I was doing the lockdown gigs from. And I'm sort of I'm probably going to do some more sort of like because I liked it. I was doing my own light shows and visuals mm. in the studio and stuff like that. And I really liked it. You know, I really like the sort of doing it to yourself. But hopefully, if it's not lockdown, I might be able to get some more musicians in my tiny room. You can't really see how big it is but i've got a big sofa i don't want that and i've got like <laughs> more gear but yeah. hopefully we can get some like you know percussionists i'm gonna get my drums back in here so well hopefully i don't know about that actually but <laughs> depends but yeah i mean so that's going to be next year and we'll just see we i think i think i've just this year's been enough to go we're back at work you know from july we lockdown ended we're back out there people have been coming out to gigs it's going to be a slow run, run and a slow process to get people out but I'm very hopeful that, you know, people got to stay in forever, can they? He's got to get out there early. Yeah, and when you do, make sure you go and see Dodgy or make sure you go and see Nigel with Mr Morris and Mr Holm doing their thing. So that is it then. Thanks to everyone 
to listening to the 73rd episode of the Fantastical Podcast. And if you're listening for the first time, if you're listening on iTunes, please subscribe, give the podcast a review. Or if you're listening on Spotify or Anchor or any other platform, give the podcast a favourite. And don't forget to recommend this to all of your families and friends. Nigel is on Twitter, so are we. So give us a follow if you don't already at Fantastical P on Twitter or you can email the podcast at fantasticalpodcast at outlook.com unfortunately we can't play music on podcasts but I'll get some tracks from Nigel we'll put them into a playlist so anyone who has heard Nigel talk about his acts we'll get some acts we'll have a nice Spotify playlist in the episode description so anyone who's not listened to Can before or the band or Sly and the Family Stone can listen to a few tracks and hopefully find some new acts for themselves and get into their new favourite artist so all that's left to say, massive thank you to my 73rd fantastical podcast guest, Nigel Clark. Nigel, it's been great talking to you, and I really enjoyed your fantasy you festival, and you came across really well and passionate when speaking about your act, so thank you for doing that. Much appreciated. I enjoyed it, man. It was good to do, actually. I really enjoyed it. Great stuff. It's, it's always really hard thinking, and, and it's the hardest thing is leaving people out, because I know I'm going to go upstairs and go, shit, I forgot them. <laughs> you know, there's always that, you know, but... But I just wanted to like put on a festival that I thought would would one open people's eyes and ears, you know, to new stuff. Yeah. Or even even though it's really old, it's new to them, isn't it? Absolutely. New to them. Absolutely. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So I'll be back with episode number seventy four next week. So please make sure to join me. But until then, stay safe, my fantastical friends. Please continue to spread the word, and that word is fantastical. Thanks for listening.